0: When we talk about things that others do not talk about, and when we're seen as a teacher, we become the voice of trust. And if I said to anybody that's listening to this, regardless of the business they're in, is trust going to be fundamental to your success over the next 20 years? Anybody would say, yes, absolutely. Anybody would say that. And so if that's the case, well, then what are we going to do about it? Are we going to fight to become that trusted voice? Or are we going to allow someone else to become that voice? I refuse to allow that. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence.
1: Our guest in this episode has been called a web marketing guru by the New York Times. The story of how he was able to save his swimming pool company from the economic crash of 2008 has been featured in multiple books, publications, and stories around the world, and is the centerpiece of his best-selling book, They Ask, You Answer. Today, he is a highly sought-after global speaker and consultant in the digital sales and marketing space, working with hundreds of brands. In this episode, we'll catch up with Marcus Sheridan. Marcus, welcome to the show. Appreciate it.
0: Pleasure to be here, Felix. It's going to be a great conversation.
1: That's right. Awesome. You're still based in
0: Virginia over there?
1: Yeah, good old Virginia, for the most part, the first day. <laughs> Where it all started. Yes, right. You've spoken all over the world, you've written books, but there might still be a few people that don't know your story and your background. So talk us through what happened in 2008 and how did you become the sales and marketing thought leader that you are today?
0: Yeah. So... I started a swimming pool company with two buddies. I was out of college in 2001. And things were going okay up until 2008. And that's when the market crashed, of course. And there was companies all over the world that were in trouble. Certainly swimming pool companies were in really, really big trouble. And so we lost a lot of business very fast when the crash happened. And I thought we were going to lose the company. I thought we were going to file bankruptcy. In fact, I talked to three consultants in January of 2009. They all said, you should file bankruptcy, Marcus.
1: That's not something that you want to hear.
0: (laughs) No, no. Especially as a business owner, your house is attached to your loans, right? So it's just like, I'm going to lose my home. My two business partners are going to lose their homes. My 16 employees at the time lost their jobs. So we had to figure out how to get back over that edge. We didn't have much time. We certainly didn't have any money. And that's when I started to really lean into the changing buyer. I started... Reading all these fancy phrases online, right? Inbound marketing, content marketing, social media, blogging, all that stuff. And what I heard, in my simple pool guy mind was, you know, Marcus, if you just obsess over your customers' questions and are willing to address those questions on your website through text, through video, you might save your business. So I said, well, shoot, I can do that. This makes a lot of sense. You know, I've been selling pools for years, and so that's what I did. I brainstormed all the questions I had ever received one night, sat at my kitchen table, and I uh, had probably a couple hundred questions about in this case, fiberglass swimming pools. And so one by one each night for the next two years, I would produce a piece of content that thoroughly addressed it, answered it without bias. And to make a long story short, we became the most traffic swim pool website in the world. And we ended up doing a lot of things that were really innovative. I didn't know it because it seemed pretty obvious to me, but they were really innovative. And I started writing about them. And as I started writing write about them on a separate blog, I started to get attention. That attention led to Consulting, which led to eventually having an agency, which led to a lot of speaking. And now, of course, like you said, I speak, except during pandemics, full time around the world. And it's been amazing. It's taken me to multiple countries. I've probably given about eight, 900 talks by this point. Wow. And so it has been unbelievable. And during this period, I wrote a book called They Ask You Answer. And They Ask You Answer has now been translated in many languages. And it just grows and grows and grows in terms of its popularity. It's become like a movement. It's very cool to see, man. But I'm still just a pool guy. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: right. What I absolutely love about your journey is, first of all, that you prioritize common sense over common practice. Amen to that. That's something that I talk a lot about in the Australian market because people over here have the tendency to look overseas and basically take that as gospel and then just apply it one-to-one. And I think that common sense mindset is something I think is really strong in your journey. You just saw what makes sense and just applied it.
0: Well, I appreciate you saying that, right? The classic phrase is common sense is often very uncommon. Hmm. And I think that's very true when it comes to certainly digital sales and marketing and the way that we go about growing our business. And Somebody could hear me say this and like, that sounds pretty obvious. Like, duh, we should be answering our customers' questions. Yeah, you should. Now, and I'm sure we'll get into this, the types of questions that you should be answering, most don't. Not at least the questions that buyers truly care about. And this is where the rubber meets the road because it's one thing to say, I want to be transparent. I want to be a trusted leader. It's another thing to actually put that in practice and discuss things that others in your space simply do not do. But to your point, it's actually incredibly common sense. It's very much golden rule, like do unto others as you yourself would want them to do unto you. I like to say, okay, in this moment, if I was the buyer, if I was the customer, would I want them to address this question? Would I want them to show this video? Would I want them to talk about this particular subject? If the answer is yes, it's like, okay, well, I wanna do it. It's that cut and dry. It's like, that's why it's they ask, you answer. Let's not overcomplicate this. There's enough marketers out there that will overcomplicate this for you. You do not need to be in that parade. And so just say it for what it is. Okay, they asked me the question. Yep, let's address it. And let's address it better than others generally address it. And that's the philosophy. And it works regardless of industry, regardless of type of business, B2B, B2C, product, service, local, national, across the board, Felix, it applies. Because it's principle driven. It's based on when we talk about things that others do not talk about, and when we're seen as a teacher, we become the voice of trust. And if I said to anybody that's listening to this, regardless of the business they're in, is trust going to be fundamental to your success over the next 20 years? anybody would say, yes, absolutely. Anybody would say that. And so if that's the case, well, then what are we going to do about it? Are we going to fight to become that trusted voice? or? Are we going to allow someone else to become that voice? I refuse to allow that.
1: Refuse. And that's the philosophy. Yeah, that's awesome. Then the other thing that also really jumped out at me in your story was how well you executed. And it was all about the execution. And in your book, you mentioned one anecdote of you actually teaching competitors in the pool space on how to... Actually, implement your principles and to become better marketers and salespeople. But hardly anybody, if anybody, really implemented as you told them. So I think the fact that you have taken what you've read, I think it was on HubSpot, used mainly as a resource. It's where it
0: started. Yeah, it started on HubSpot's site. And that's really where the impetus began. And it all just started to click for me. But to that point, Felix, it's like you really can take a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And I teach this stuff to so many businesses, but before I taught it to the world, I taught it to the pool industry. And I've taught over a thousand swimming pool companies how we became the most traffic swimming pool website in the world, how we became the fastest growing manufacturer of fiberglass pools in the world, how we became the first franchise business where we have franchisees for swimming pools all over the US. I mean, we were first to do all these things and it happened because of this philosophy, yet most won't do it. 99% haven't done almost any of it. And it goes back to that point. You can take a horse of water, but you can't make a drink. People are going to listen to this podcast whenever they listen to it. The large percentage will not take action on what we say. And that's a tragedy, but it's truth. It's truth. Yeah. So for the 5% of you that are listening, that are ready to take action, then I'm going to give you some tips here. I'm sure we'll hit them that are gonna allow you to literally run and blow by the marketplace and be truly seen as the trusted voice within whatever industry you're a part of.
1: Yeah. To help organizations understand where they are in their sales enablement journey, Kruger Marketing has created a tool called the Sales Enablement Score. The Sales Enablement Score features a 20-question survey focused on the disciplines high-performing organizations have mastered according to leading industry research. Our algorithm calculates a score that indicates how much room for improvement there is for your organization. To calculate your sales enablement score with this ungated and anonymous tool, visit salesenablementscore.com. That's salesenablementscore.com. And speaking of industries, cynics might say, okay, Marcus, you did this with your swimming pool company, but like I'm running a high tech, high ticket B2B technology business, and it's a very different industry and it won't work for me. What do you tell those people?
0: The biggest problem with the B2B space is they actually think they're special when they're not. And the quicker someone recognizes that within that space, the better off they are. What's funny about it too is many in the B2B space are actually b 2 b to c anyway. What I mean by that is you take like me as a manufacturer, I sell to pool dealers, they own a pool business. I didn't always do that, but that's what happened because of the Ask You Answer. But I'm also selling to that end user, that consumer in the end, because they're putting my shell in their home. So it's a B2B2C company. I have a marketing agency, about 70 employees, and it's purely service based consultative service that we offer. The way we sell, the way we market does not change, does not change. And I will never understand for the life of me, Felix. Why we're so obsessed with hearing truth and principle-based information and then trying to find ways to see where the flaw is or how it doesn't apply when definitively it does. And if it's okay with you, let me give an example. Yep. So one of the major points in the book, and daggone, if you're listening to this you your B2B, please lean in right now. One of the major points of the book is there's five fundamental subjects that every buyer wants to research before they engage a company. Five things that we want to know so as to feel like we've done our research. What are the five? We call them the big five. Big five are, as buyers, we want to know, number one, how much is it? Cost, rates, general pricing, etc. This way we can define value in the marketplace. Number two, we want to know what is wrong with it. In other words, how could this decision go wrong? How could it blow up in our face? what are the drawbacks, what are the potential issues, et cetera. Number three, we want to know how does it compare to that other thing that we're looking at. We love to compare stuff versus comparisons. Number four, we love reviews. We're obsessed with them, but we like them because generally they're more unbiased because companies, for the most part, are not unbiased with the way they talk about their products. They don't say who they are and are not a good fit for, which by the way, you should be doing. And then finally, number five, we love to research the best. I mean, we love understanding the best. We research the best. We do this all the time. How many times have you searched the phrase "best plus whatever" online? We've gone to Google. Those are the five things: cost, problems, comparisons, reviews, best. Now, those five—they run the economy. That's what buyers research all day long, and we know that they do 80% of their research before they engage the company, before they engage the salesperson. They're 80% home. We know that from all the studies, Forrester, etc. We've seen this now. Yet notwithstanding, the very high majority, especially of B2B service-based businesses who are the worst culprit of this, do not address these five subjects. Talk to a B2B and you say, so, do you talk about cost and price on your website? Oh, no, 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 we can't talk about that. No, sir, we're a service-based business. I'm like, oh, why can't we? Well, every job is different and it's a very customized solution. Our competitors will find out. We just might scare them away if we talked about cost and price. Okay, let's be honest with each other for a second. Number one, if you were a customer, a potential buyer, would you want to understand cost and price when you're in your research phase? Yes. And if somebody wasn't willing to talk to you about it, in other words, if they didn't mention it on their website, would that turn you off? Yes. Would it mean that they're more likely, or you're more likely not to call that potential business? Yes, I'm more likely not to call them. Who are you going to call? Whoever answers my questions. Okay, good. We established that right there. Then if you look at the three reasons why we don't talk about cost and price, well, it's a very customized solution. Well, if I was talking to you and you said, I can't talk about it, Marcus, because you know, it's very customized, it's variable. I would say, okay, that's fine, Felix. Can you help me understand what drives the cost of your particular product or service up? And you could say, yeah, of course I could. And if I said to you, could you help me understand what would drive the cost of your product or service down? You'd say, yes, of course I could. If I said to you, can you help me understand why some companies are more expensive than others in the industry? You'd say, yes, of course I could. If I said, can you help me get a range for what I could expect with spending with you? You'd say, yes, of course I could. In fact, your sales team does it all the time yet we don't address this on the front end during 80% of the buying process it is absolutely hypocritical to the 10th degree because we ourselves want that over 90% of b2b service based businesses do not talk about cost and price and that includes b2bs across the board they don't talk about cost and price and remember i'm not saying you have to put your exact price list on your website what we're saying is your buyers want to understand roughly how much is it going to be And what are all the factors that go into this? You would wanna know it, they want to know it. They ask you this all the time. And too often we don't hold the conversation on value until we get asked to justify our price. Guess what? By that point, oftentimes we've already lost the business. In fact, they've already moved on and we never even met them. We didn't even know they existed. They moved on so early in the sales process because they didn't give us the time and date because we weren't willing to address a fundamental simple question that everybody has. I've helped B2B companies all over the world address cost and price on their website. The number one piece of content for over 90% of the companies I've worked with, clients I had, and there's hundreds. The number one lead producing content, revenue producing content has to do with cost and price it is inarguable if you look at the data and the numbers yet still the majority of people listening this right now are going to make up reasons as to why they can't talk about cost and price on their website and that's
1: sad (laughs) you should be sad if you're listening and you don't do this seriously you should be that's right I mean, that's also something that you say in the book. Even if you don't want to mention specifics about the price or provide a calculator, the least you can do is to at least discuss the factors that impact price.
0: Yeah, let me give an example. So as a B2B marketing agency, there's lots of cost questions that people might have for us. So let's say somebody is interested in HubSpot. So if I looked at the big five for HubSpot, which is software as a service. Number one, what is the average cost to implement HubSpot? Number two, what are the potential problems and drawbacks or disadvantages of HubSpot? Okay, that's the problems one. Number three, how does HubSpot compare to Marketo and Pardot or any of these other ones that it compares to? Number four, all about the positive and negative views of HubSpot. Number five, what is the best marketing automation platform for? schools or four small businesses or four, you pick whatever that niche is. I just did a really quick example. Those are the big five right there. Underneath each one of them, there could be multiple. There could be tons of best-based questions for HubSpot, depending on industry and depending on application and situation. could be tons of comparison-based questions. But these are the questions that buyers, customers, people that are actually going to spend money want to know. And the problem is, most company, they do, quote, content marketing and it's fluffy as heck. It is not buyer-driven. It is not customer-driven. It's fluffy stuff that the sales team never hears, but yet the marketing team is producing it, and they're thinking it's going to produce leads. We talk about the funnel. It's not even in the top of the funnel. It's like somewhere in the clouds. Fluff, fluff, fluff. Whereas, you talk about costs, you talk about comparisons, you talk about problems. That's what buyers want to know. You start at the bottom of the funnel, my friends, with your content. You want to produce results? Start at the bottom of the funnel. And besides that, these big five, that's going to help your sales team. We talk about sales enablement. Sales enablement is the process of us doing stuff to make the life of our sales team easier so as to close more deals. Well, how can we shorten the sales cycle? We need more informed buyers. How do we get more informed buyers? We got to educate them better on the front end. How do we educate them better? We obsessively listen, and then we produce the stinking content, text, video, et cetera, that addresses those things that generally we wait to address when we're face-to-face or having a prospect conversation. This is stuff that is so obvious at its surface, and what's so exciting, Felix, is it's still not happening. Talk about a blue ocean. This ocean is just so explosively blue of opportunities. (laughs) That's right. So there's no reason not to do it. Many of the people listening to this right now, especially the B2Bs listening to this, nobody in your industry has ever truly addressed price well on their website. Think about that. You can be first. Don't you want to be first?
1: (laughs) Man, I do. I love it. So let's say there's some marketers listening that are working closely with their sales team and they might say, okay, I get it. I know what to do. We start producing this content. How do you then build the bridge between sales and marketing and help sales proactively utilize that content during the sales process? So we have a section in the book called Assignment Selling. Assignment Selling
0: is an incredible concept if you will just teach it to your sales team. And where I discovered Assignment Selling was it started in 2013. I was comparing two groups of people from my company website. So both groups had filled out a form and said, I want to get a quote. So they filled out that classic, I want to get a quote form. Now, one group bought, one group didn't buy. And the question I asked myself was, what is the difference between the ones that did versus did not buy? And here's what we found, that when someone read 30 or more pieces of content, they would buy 80% of the time. In other words, when they crossed over that 30-page threshold of our website, the closing rates would go from literally on average 25%, which was industry average, by the way, to 80%, like a literal hockey stick of explosive growth when it came to closing rates. So I said, My goodness, all I have to do is get somebody to read 30 pieces of our content and they'll buy 80% of the time. And then I know four out of five sales appointments are going to close. That would be so much better for me, for my life as a pool sales guy, right back in the day. So I said, Okay. I'm going to get very intentional about this. So, we completely revolutionized the way that we communicated with leads on the front end of the buying process. And what I'm about to show you or tell you is something that I've now done with hundreds of sales teams. Anybody can do this. And so, as I explain, I want you to listen really listen to it, apply it to you, but the principles would be the same as to how you do it. So, you notice what I'm going to do is I'm going to essentially give you an assignment. I'm not going to just ask you to do it. I'm going to give you the why behind it. It's going to be appealing. Like, wow, I really need to do that. And then I'm going to commit you to do it. And so let's say hypothetically, you called me and said, hey, Marcus, I'm checking out your website. Could I get a quote for a pool? Understanding these principles, instead of just saying, yeah, sure, I would say, this is how we say it today. Sure, I'd love to come out to your house, Felix, but you're getting ready to spend a lot of money. And if you're going to spend a lot of money, I know you don't want to make any mistakes. And so as to make sure you don't make any mistakes, here's what we're going to do. As we're talking on the phone right now, I'm going to send you two things that you're going to love. First thing I'm going to send you is a video that shows you the install process. You're going to see the pool show up to a yard, excavation, pool go in the ground, etc. And this way, when we meet together on Friday, you're not going to say to me, so Marcus, what does this process look like? You're already going to know. Now, time out real quick. That just saved me 30 minutes on my sales appointment already just by them watching that video. Now, the second thing I'm going to send you is a buying guide. This buying guide's great because it's going to answer a lot of the questions you have about pools, Felix, that nobody has addressed yet. Like, should I get a heater with my pool? What's the best type of heater? Should it be gas? Should it be electric? Should it heat and cool the water? Should I go solar? Should I get a cover? What's the best type of cover? Should it be mesh? Should it be solid? Should it be automatic? Should it be solar? Now, this guide's a little bit long. It's about 30 pages, but I promise it'll be well worth your time. So, Felix, will you take the time to review these things before our appointment on Friday? And that's exactly how I say it. That's exactly how we teach it. But 90% of the time, the person says, sure. And if you think about it, now they have committed to literally push themselves down that funnel or out the funnel, both of which are good because it means when I meet with that person, I want to spend less time teaching, more time selling. And You show me a salesperson that doesn't want to spend more time selling, less time teaching. That's everybody. That's what we want. That is the goal. But too often, we define successful selling as teaching. No, teaching is teaching. Teaching is not selling. Eventually, we actually have to make money, And so you want to teach as much as you can on the front end, especially during that 80% vetting process, and then allow the next step naturally to be the sale. Everybody wins.
1: That's awesome. All the principles that you talk about would be considered inbound to a certain degree. Do you think there's still room for outbound? And if so, like, how would you use content in that context?
0: There's always room for outbound. The thing about it is you just want to say things, though, in a way that other people don't say them. If you're going to send out direct mail, then you want to lean into these questions that you know people have to entice them to come back to your site, to learn more about that. In other words, let's say hypothetically that I was sending out a direct mailer and I might have on there, get an immediate price on the swimming pool of your dreams with our swimming pool calculator, which by the way, we have on my website. We were the first manufacturer in the world to do that with swimming pools. It's pretty wild, it's pretty cool. Which by the way, we don't make the prices. You say, but you're the manufacturer, you're not the end installer, so how do you have a pricing calculator? (laughs) There's always a way, my friends. You can't always give exact, but you can always address the question. So we give a great price range, which is 99.9999% more than every other manufacturer is willing to do. That makes us the trusted voice. And that is what it's all about, is the willingness to talk about, and to teach, and to show what others in your space are not, yet everybody wants to know it and understand
1: it. Mm, got it. So you would essentially utilize content in the way you reach out to people to be proactive about if they're really interested to then explore further. So you basically build that connection between the outreach and a potential progression in the sales funnel with content. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, it's very fair to say. And again, it goes back to making the most flinch of surprise. like. They did that? They're willing to talk about that? They're willing to show me that? They're willing to teach me that? No way. They got a pricing calculator? I can find out a price right now? You want to talk to a salesperson? Yeah. A recent study came out, 33% of all buyers say they would prefer to have a seller-free sales experience, Felix.
1: Yeah, that's right. Especially millennials.
0: 44% for millennials. Yeah, yeah. That was Gartner came out with that study, which is pretty profound. And that's why if you ain't front-loading this, if you're not really giving them what they want, Forget it. You will slowly be left behind. That's not a great place to be.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, millennials, they will be the majority of decision makers very soon if they're not already. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a big missed opportunity if you <laughs> if you ignore that they don't want to talk to your salespeople. It's exactly right. You essentially leave it up to chance, right? Yes. You essentially leave your outreach activity up to chance if you really rely on that. That's right. And you've also spoken a lot about video lately. In fact, so much that you've written a book about it. Why do you love video in particular? And how would you say video fits into that whole sales journey? Oh, gosh.
0: I love video the same reason everybody else loves video. Anybody that says they don't love video, I don't believe them. <laughs> because they're watching it. They're watching the shows or they're learning online by watching a video. Some people might say, I'm not a visual learner. <laughs> really? So you tell me you've never watched... A video to research a particular product before. Pretty much everybody has at this point, and it's growing. 85% of the content consumed online is video based content. 85% of the content consumed online is video based content. And there's just magic behind what we can do with video. I think there's magic behind text too. Text isn't dead, but in terms of where we're trending, where we're going, we better become great with video. And we can't just sit back and write articles all day and think that that's going to carry the day in terms of really helping our buyers feel like they can see the thing without holding the thing. It's almost like, can they do the test drive without being in the car? And that's what video gives us the capabilities to do, and most companies resist it, which again is ridiculous because that's denying what we ourselves are saying we want. And so this trend is exploding, And there's so many opportunities to integrate it into the sales process, whether it's one-to-one video with email, which is tremendous, especially in a B2B sales environment. I just love one-to-one video like Vidyard and and other tools like that. Then we've got integrating video into our assignment selling, just like I did with you a minute ago. I said, I'm going to send you this video. You need to watch it because I want to eliminate questions. I want you to know. I want to move further beyond that in the sales cycle. And you seeing it, seeing it is believing it. That's been that way for a long time. And it's more true than ever. We have to start to see ourselves as media companies. You can't be passive about video friends. You've got to get much more serious about it. You know, I have three very different companies. I've got a marketing agency. I've got a speaking company. And then I've got a swimming pool company. Each one has at least one full-time videographer. And they're not necessarily massive companies. But why is that? Because I have no choice. The marketplace has stated, I want to see it. Thus, I need to show it. That's they ask you answer. Am I willing to show it, communicate it, sell it in the way they want to learn about it, see it, buy it? Right. This is the evolution that we need to make. That's the pivot that we need to do when the marketplace is telling us, hey, this is what I want. And so instead of the gnashing and wailing of teeth and just saying, video's not my thing, the truth is Number one, we have to get over it because our opinions don't matter. The only thing that matters is the opinion of the marketplace. At least anybody that's been in business any period of time understands that very fundamentally. And besides that, most people are much better at videos than they give themselves credit for. They just haven't learned how to be good on video. But I can tell you this, the moment you start treating video like you do a sales appointment, everything changes. People tell me, I can't do a video on one take. I'm like, really? So when was the last time you're sitting in front of a prospect where the pressure's really on and halfway through the conversation you stopped and said, you know what? I just totally screwed up what I just said. I'm gonna start all over (laughs) again if that's okay with you. Nobody's ever said that. Well, why haven't you said it? Because I have no choice. I have to keep going. Why do you have to keep going? Just because I do. And so how do you recover? Well, I just recover by saying it the right way. Exactly. And so when it comes to video, the majority of your videos should be one take. Because when your friend says, How was your weekend? You don't take three takes. You take one take. <laughs> it's one take. That's <laughs> how it works. That's called communication. So the moment we start communicating with the camera, like we're communicating with a friend, sitting at the coffee shop, everything starts to change. Yeah. Everything does. I've taken people that said, I'm awful on camera. This isn't my thing. 45 minutes later, they're like, you know what? I think I might be a natural. Mm. I'm not exaggerating. It's happened to me multiple times. By Simple rules and guidelines to follow.
1: Especially if you consider the ease of production. Like once you actually become better at presenting a video, the production process is literally you press a button once, you do your thing, you talk, then you press the button again. That's the production process, right? Glorious. When you think about the amount of work and the keystrokes that you need to put in to actually write an article compared to pressing a button twice... And talking about a topic that you would probably talk about all day long with your prospects, I think it's an underutilized opportunity. It's crazy, Felix.
0: The average salesperson talks four to five times faster than they type. Yeah. So when we get that longest question that requires a longish answer, and we type out a long answer, and it takes us 20 minutes, and then we have to go back and we have to edit, we're literally saying, you know what? Efficiency isn't important to me. I love wasting time. And so let me write this out. When we could do one video using a tool like a Vidyard, let's say, and now it took you five minutes to do the whole thing instead of 20, 25 minutes. It's way more personal. It's more easily understood because it's a stinking video where they can see the flexion and they can pick up on all the nuances of communication. I mean, I I could go on and on with it, brother, yet most salespeople still don't think this way. I'm all about things that we've done in the past that worked well and continue to do those to a degree, but we've got to integrate best practices for the present and for the future. And all you got to do is you got to look in the mirror and you got to say, okay, what would I prefer? What I want? And then you've got good guidance right there because your customers are like that too for the most part.
1: A lot of people listening to this podcast are sales leaders within the organization. Some are marketing leaders, but the majority would be sales leaders. For those people, let's say they buy into the whole concept and they say, okay, I finally get it. I want to utilize content better in my sales process. How do you think they should approach that conversation with their marketing counterparts to actually make it happen?
0: Yeah, it's a big deal. I call that really the makings of a revenue team because the revenue team is the big umbrella and underneath that is sales and marketing. And we have a big problem of silos, of course, in organizations all over the world Where sales and marketing are not communicating, which is a tragedy. Marketing should be coming to sales saying, What are the biggest questions, issues, worries our customers have? What are you having to combat? Because that's the content they need to be producing. That's where they should be starting anyway. And sales needs to be involved in the marketing editorial calendar planning, and marketing should be at sales trainings. If they're not attending each other's meetings, then there's misalignment and it poor culture of sales and marketing alignment within the company. Too often they're not meeting together and no single individual from one attends the others. That's very, very problematic. Then what needs to happen is sales needs to have influence on the subject matter itself when it's produced. Really, sales generally should be the ones that is producing a lot of the content. Now not necessarily writing it, but should be interviewed by the marketing team. And because they've got their boots on the ground, they're the ones that are hearing the questions all the time. They're the ones that are answering them more than anyone else. So it's either sales or engineering, but somebody's got to answer the questions. Usually, your best subject matter experts, at least on the service, should be your sales team. So they should be involved in the content production process. Remember, we're much more likely to care about and share about that which we help create. But if we don't help create it, if we have no involvement in the creation process, well, then there's a very good chance we're going to be aloof to it and never integrate it into our day to day. Whereas if I helped create it, now I feel a sense of ownership. I'm going to want to share it myself. I'm going to want to utilize it with my customers. And they're going to see me differently. And I know that. So it's going to help me quite a bit. It's going to help me quite a bit. So you also have to take the time, though, to teach your sales team how to integrate this into the sales process. You can't just produce some content and say, go. They gotta know where to go for the content. They need to be updated on the content that has been produced, the problems that it solves, maybe the applications of when you would use it. And then consistently, sales managers should be working with them so as to ensure they're looking for ways, again, to integrate it into the sales process. You say, it sounds obvious. It's not obvious because what will happen is you'll hear just completely poorly communicated sales messaging. Salesperson's talking to a prospect. Salesperson says, well, by the way, I'm going to send you a video. If you get a chance, check it out. That's a fail. They almost did nothing right. Other than the fact that they mentioned, okay, I'm going to send you a video. They didn't say what it was about. They didn't have any teases. Here's some of the things that you're going to learn about, stuff they haven't already learned. They didn't get a commitment that the person would watch it. Those are the techniques that need to be practiced when it comes to something like assignment selling. You need to have within your sales team to a couple of champions that embrace this. A couple of champions embrace one-to-one video, a couple of champions embrace using content in the sales process. Now all of a sudden, they start to share their success stories and everybody else wants in on the action. Salespeople are inherently resistant to change. They're also inherently competitive. And so if they see one of their peers crushing it because of the fact that, that they are doing digital selling at a higher level, well, then they're going to say, maybe I want some of that action. That's how you can promote some real change.
1: That's awesome. And have you witnessed organizations going through that change?
0: Have I? Good grief. I mean, this is what I do. This is what my agency does. For two years, this is what we've been doing. And a lot of this was sped up because COVID forced video-based selling on so many salespeople. Of course, I've written a ton about that. I've done entire conferences on virtual selling. There's a lot to that. But the huge mistake that was made is, like I said, a lot of companies said, "Uh uh-oh, we can't meet face-to-face in person with the prospect. So everybody needs to start doing video sales calls. And what we clearly found is just because somebody's good at sales doesn't necessarily mean they understand how to run an effective video sales call. So that's something that has to be addressed, has to be taught. And then you can start to see, wow, I can be extremely effective over video, but they got to get the best practices and principles.
1: What are some of the tips you can share around running an effective video sales call?
0: So an example of this would be when you are talking to a group of decision makers on a video sales call, you should never ask an open question to the group. Of course, you say, well, I thought I was supposed to ask open questions always. Yes, but you ask open questions to individuals not to the group. Because the moment you ask a question to the group, what happens? Potentially, you got awkward silence. Potentially, two people speak over each other or more. Oftentimes, one person will start to take over the call, the alpha, and everybody else will slide away into the shadows. And so now we haven't elevated all voices. Great sales professionals elevate all voices that are on every call so that all decision makers feel heard, feel understood, and are, for lack of a better term, impressed by, attracted to that salesperson because of their skills, right? They say, wow, I like this person. I want to work with them. They took the time to hear me out, to get to know me. And so let's say you've got Jenny, James, and John on a phone call, and you're starting that video call. I might say, so Jenny, what's the most important thing in your mind that we covered today? And John, what else would you like to add to that? And James, do you think there's anything else that we missed? That's flow, flow of conversation, no dead spots, And awkward silence in person and in boardrooms oftentimes can be a fine thing because it means everybody's thinking. But awkward silence doesn't translate to video sales calls nearly as well. (laughs) And so you want to be able to promote that flow. The way you promote the flow is controlling it by the nuances of what you do. So you ask questions using people's names. You do not ask them to the group. That's just one tip. There's many others that I teach but they're incredibly effective. And I've taught massive sales teams how to do this.
1: And it works. That's awesome. Yeah, I love the awkward silence bit. <laughs> I think in person, you've got that certain tension that actually adds to the experience. But as you said, like on a sales call, it's more a question of somebody turning the microphone off and not being interested. That's correct. We spoke a lot about the principles of they ask your answer and actually answering questions that your customers would already have. But what about that thought leadership content about the topics that are on the horizon that are not just on the customer's agenda that can potentially also set you apart from your competition? Like what about that sort of content and how would you utilize that? Fundamentally, anything that
0: allows you to put your stake in the ground, express your thought leadership, your opinion on something is very good. Sometimes, to your point, you should be bringing up things that they haven't thought to ask, but they should be asking. And that's really how you can provide a lot of value. But you know, the thing about it is, is you've just got to get in the habit of saying, what would I want to know? What do they need to know? Have we addressed that on the front end during that digital vetting period? What are we doing to make sure they learn these things before we actually meet with them in that face-to-face environment? What can I do to speed up the sales process, to facilitate it, to remove obstacles? Because that's what buyers want today. You have to be willing to lean into that.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of companies worry about the thought leadership piece before they worry about the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. I think you're able to harvest a lot of demand or create a lot of demand if you have done the essentials right and then basically produce that thought leadership content that then expands your reach and tells those people that didn't know they had a problem about why they should start worrying about that, which then might prompt them to investigate.
0: Yeah, let me give an example of this. So when we started with fiberglass pools 20 years ago, roughly 90% of all fiberglass pools were built on sand. In other words, they dig a hole, they would put sand at the base, set the pool on that, they would backfill around the pool with sand, and then you pour your concrete collar. Well, this is about the stupidest thing that you can do. Because, heck, even the Bible 2,000 years ago said, you don't build your house upon sand. (laughs) What do you build it on? Rock. And so Sand has all these inherent problems. It can wash, it can move, it actually settles. And so when you're putting a massive pool on it with water, we've had many situations we would see where, let's say, you tore a deck off of a pool at some point, like the concrete patio around it, and you would see the concrete patio was hanging in the air. It wasn't sitting on anything because the sand underneath of it had settled, that backfill had settled over time. So there's all these inherent flaws with it. So we started to openly write about how all fiberglass pools should have a gravel base and be backfilled with gravel. And then I started getting calls from pool dealers around the country saying, Marcus, you're totally screwing me up, man, because now this homeowner's customer of mine is telling me that they want us to install the pool on gravel, and gravel's gonna cost me $750 more. And I would respond with, bro, that ain't my problem. That's your problem, because you're doing it the wrong way. And so your choice is either do it the right way, as the marketplace would want you to do it, like you yourself, No, you should be doing it, or you can go the cheap route because you're thinking price only, which is ridiculous, and that doesn't serve anybody, the customer, the industry, or you. Not my problem. And so today, and I exaggerate not, 90% of fiberglass pools are built on gravel. Think about that. (laughs) That's how you change an industry.
1: Yeah, that's right. And at the same time, you better serve your customers and avoid those problems for them.
0: And you become the voice of trust with dealers and with end users'
1: customers. Exactly. So you mentioned the role of sales in gathering intelligence and then also distributing content. What sort of role does technology play in that process? Like what's the tech stack that allows you to do those things that you might start out doing by collaborating and communicating internally beyond just that intelligence that's contained within the organization? And how do you use technology to scale that beyond that?
0: Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that this is my forte. Let me say this. oftentimes. We get technology and tools, kind of like the person that's overweight and buys a treadmill and thinks they'll automatically lose weight.
1: (laughs) It's a great analogy.
0: It doesn't actually happen until you get on the treadmill. That's right. And move your body. And that's a commitment. That's also why I've gotten on the treadmill generally 355 days a year, every year for the last 20 years. It's because that's a commitment that I've made. And you see it so much that you buy the technology and they're not using it or they understand 10, 20% of it. I would say though that the tech stack that I love the most, of course, is HubSpot still to this day. I think it's a phenomenal tool. I love the ability to look at lead behavior on my website. That was my favorite thing to do as a salesperson. To have a lead come through the system, see all the pages they viewed. Because the pages they viewed tell the story of the prospect. Tells me, what are their hot buttons? How much do they know? Are they ignorant or are they incredibly informed? Are they detail oriented? What are the specific things that they want? What does not interest them because they haven't viewed it? What are the things they've gone back to more than once that tells me, boy, that's really on their mind? Like that to me is incredible intelligence that every sales person should have, should be integrating into their prep work for any call. Many do not. I think that's a tragedy. That's my number one. The number one thing that I think salespeople should be doing is looking at that lead behavior on the site before they make the first call.
1: That's awesome. In terms of sales leaders are getting ready for 2022, like a lot of sales teams have already started the planning for the new year. What do you say are the top three things you can recommend sales leaders implement to hit the ground running in 2022?
0: They should be doing one-to-one video with
1: a tool like Vidyard. And you can't use budget as an
0: excuse because you can get a tool like that for free at this point. If we don't use it right now, we're just being lazy and we're saying, I don't want to humanize my relationships more so because that's what happens as a byproduct. Number two, I'd hire an in-house videographer. That should come out of sales budget, not marketing, because the first videos you produce should be for the sales team. Your subject matter experts should be the sales team. That's the second thing that I would do. And then third thing I would do, and this is very, almost a soft skill, but I need to say it anyway, a couple things I would do. 3A and 3B. 3A, I would teach them assignment selling and how to integrate content very well into the sales process. 3B, I would go back to the basics on teaching the sales team how to ask the perfect question every time. The art of asking the perfect question is a lost one. I mean, it's gonzo, buddy. And I have salespeople all the time. I'll ask a question, do you think you're good at asking questions? They'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll say, okay, let's do a couple tests. And I have a series of tests that I do that are interactive that forces them to use questions. And they'll always say afterwards, my gosh, Marcus, I, I thought I was good. And I realize I'm not nearly as good as I thought at asking the right question every time. So that's a skill I think it's more important than ever, especially in a time where we're very digital, and we talk about things that can set us apart. Asking deeper, better questions as a sales professional will set you apart. But you got to learn it. You got to learn active listening in conjunction with it. It's a total game changer. It's a utter tragedy that most sales teams are not being trained on this.
1: Awesome. Well, Marcus, running out of time, but thank you so much for sharing all your insights with us. You're pretty much omnipresent online. Hard to miss your content, but where can people find you if they really wanted to? The main place you want to find me is LinkedIn. So make sure you go to LinkedIn.
0: Follow me there. I'm a good follow. I can assure you of that. And also, if you want to reach out to me personally, it's marcus at marcusheridan.com. Is a personal email that anybody can hit me up with. I'll read that, marcus at marcusheridan.com. The final thing is, get the book, people. Get the Ask You Answer. It will turn... What you see is digital sales and marketing on its head. And you'll say, my goodness, this was so simple yet so profound at the same time. How is that possible? That's my promise to you. If anybody reads the book and says that wasn't the case, I'll send you personally a refund on the book.
1: So check it out. <laughs> All right. Marcus, thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more about sales enablement, you'll find a growing number of articles, videos, and templates specifically for enterprise technology businesses at krugermarketing.com learn. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R marketing.com learn.